So hey, grab your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 16 through 25. And if, uh, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. We hope you're enjoying yourself. And if those of you who've been here for a while, you heard me mention Acts chapter 16, that doesn't mean that we're going back into resurgence again. Uh, but we are going to revisit a passage that we looked at uh, last year. Um, but this morning, we're going to hit the third kind of theme that we've been through this month as we're looking at the Advent season, which is the arrival or the coming of Jesus and talking about the traditional themes. And so we've talked about hope and we've talked about peace and today we're going to talk about joy. And this morning, before we look in the passage, um, we're talking about the concept of what does it mean to receive what God has for us and then to give it away. So Christmas is about receiving from God what he's doing in us, which never ends with us, always goes to other people, and then giving that away. And so when we talk about the concept of joy, um, I want to kind of compare it. When we talked about peace, peace comes from being right with God. That's what we talked about. When our relationship with God is good, then we experience peace because that's the, the biggest issue that all of humanity has. The reason we have strife and tension internally is that we're not at peace with God. And so when we get that, we, be ha we have peace in our lives. So that has to do with the way we relate with, with God. It's the, the relationship with God. But joy is another element to that which has to do with the presence of God. And that is when we finally realize what Jesus has said throughout the scriptures and what the Holy Spirit reminds of us, as a, us and what Christmas <laughs> says in the actual name of who Jesus is, is that God is actually with us all the time. He's present in every circumstance. There is never any moment in your life, there is never any circumstance, suffering, trials, challenges that you ever go through that somehow God is disconnected from. He's always present. And if we actually understand that, then there's a sense of joy. Why? Because even the things that we go through that are difficult are not some out, somehow outside of God's control in our lives. In fact, that's why we won't go there, but that's why James actually said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. Why would he say that? Because he's saying that when you're facing trials, it's evidence that God is presently working in your life. And if we get that one down, then we can experience joy. Now, here's the reality about joy, then we'll talk about this. There is the, the joy that we receive from God, because there's some things we'll get down and understand, but then there's the joy that we give away. But you can't tell somebody that you have joy. They have to see it. It's joy is something that you have in you that you experience that people can point at and say, I see something in them. You can't say, hey, I'm a joyful person. No, 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 no. You're joyful, why? Because people can see it in you. It's something somebody else identifies about you instead of you trying to say that this is true of you. But where does joy come from? Again, it comes from the fact that God is with us. There's something about understanding his presence all the time in our lives. And for me, the, the way I kind of kind of equate this in my life, now your experience growing up may be different than mine. But when I was growing up, there, I, I loved my parents equally, but each of them kind of carried a different kind of role in my life. And my dad, one of the things that my dad always did was he, his presence brought a calming in my life. And it wasn't necessarily him having to sit right next to me, him just being there. And so I remember as growing up as a kid, because I dealt with lots of anxiety. But my dad, because he was a professor, he would teach night classes. And so there's a lot of times he was gone in the evenings and he would get back between 11, maybe 10, 30 and 11 at night. And I would be in my room and I would be in my bed sleeping, but not really sleeping. And I would listen. And I would listen for the door to open. And when the door would open and the door would close, then I would take a deep breath and I'd say to myself, dad's home. And then I could rest. And it wasn't that he came into my room and tucked me in and said my night, goodnight prayers. It's just the fact that he was in the house. He was there. And there's something in me that like, okay, dad's here. Everything's okay now. On a much grander scale, 
the God of the universe wants you and I to know. That's why the Bible's very clear in Matthew. The name of Jesus is what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God with us sometimes, and then he's not with us. He's always with us. And if you and I truly believe that, it changes the way we live our life. It creates joy inside of us. And so I want you to, to, to look at this story in Acts chapter 16, because here's two people who got this. They understood this. They lived this. And they went through some of the most difficult and challenging seasons in their life. In fact, what we're going to read in Acts chapter 16 is probably one of the most difficult moments in Paul and Silas's life. And I want us to see how they encountered it and how they reacted to it. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read starting in verse 16 of Acts 16 down to verse 25. So they are traveling around telling people the good news about the fact that Jesus brings forgiveness and reconnection with God. They're telling people people are getting healed. All these great things are happening. They get to this city called Philippi, and this is what unfolds. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So we'll just stop there. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Scripture, especially when there's a summary that's written like this, it doesn't get into the detail of what was occurring. So Paul and Silas have given their life to follow Jesus. They're going to go anywhere and do anything he asks them to do. So even in that moment where this girl's through, actually through, through her demon possession, she knows who Jesus is, and she's proclaiming who these guys are. And Paul, out of his own irritation, knows the power of God that's, that works through him. He turns around and he casts a demon out of her, which is a great thing. But it causes this incredible stir in the city. Now there's this uproar in such a point, there's a frenzy that's going on. And so when, when Paul and Silas get arrested, and it says that they, they <laughs> many, many blows upon them and beaten with rods, that's kind of a short little phrase that basically explains they were brutally tortured. This is not something like, here, let me give you a few whips with a rod and maybe punch you a few times. This was horrific to the point where it's similar to what Jesus experienced when, when he was flogged before he went to the cross. And then they're taken and they're put into the inner cell. And so now they're put into stocks. And the way the stocks were designed were to put prisoners at, at, at a place of being unbalanced. So these stocks literally spread their feet apart, held them in an unbalanced position. Their backs are ripped open and swollen from be getting beaten. And so they're, they're, they're made to be in, in constant pain. This is the situation that Paul and Silas are in. So now you don't capture all of that and just like, well, they got hit a few times and beaten with rods. No, this is horrific. And so this is where they're at now, and, and there's a good chance because they've been presenting the gospel that they know that the Romans don't like this and the Jews don't like this, so there's a good chance that their life could end soon. And what are they doing? They're praying, they're worshiping, they're focusing on Jesus. 
let's just be honest for a minute. Would we do that? I'll be honest. I, I think I might think, God, really? We just did what you told us to do. We just freed a girl from a demon. We've given up everything to follow you. And now we get this, and this is what you give us? Anybody relate? But what were they doing? They were demonstrating the joy that was deep in their souls. When you're at the lowest moment of your life, you can't manufacture joy. It's either there or it isn't. And they had it. So why did they have it? Because there's three things I want to highlight of experiencing joy. And these are right from Paul's own words. This is why we know that they had the joy, that Paul and Silas had joy. They were experiencing joy. Why were they singing praise and praising God? So the first thing is this. They were experiencing joy because Jesus had saved their souls. This is so significant. They were filled with joy because they understood what it meant to be saved, to experience salvation. Listen to what Paul says. These are his own words. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Paul says this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing uh, to me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Let me just pause right there. You remember what Paul was doing? When Jesus got a hold of him, Paul was persecuting Christians, cheering on at their death and throwing them into prison, doing anything he could to stop the advance of what Jesus was trying to do in the church. He goes on, he says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out upon me abundantly along with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. He, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Just, I want you just to let that settle in for a moment. Paul knew himself really well. And he understood this fact. He knew what Jesus had saved him from. Yeah, he'd saved him from punishment and from hell, but he had saved him from himself, from his own issues, his own failures, his own brokenness. He's saying, I'm the worst, and I know how good the grace of God is. And if he can forgive me for all the things that I've done and he can save my soul, that gives me a sense of joy. Why? Because even in my greatest failures, God is still present with me. His grace is still sufficient in my life. So think about this for a moment. In our culture, we've become very accustomed to defining people by their greatest moment of failure. In fact, recently, this has become the norm in our culture. When something comes out about somebody that demonstrates their humanity, which, by the way, is probably true of 75% of the rest of the population, we just don't know it, that person gets crucified. That person gets marginalized. In fact, I heard it on the news a couple times this week. There's a phrase for it now. We delete them. That's what our culture has started to call this. So if somebody is guilty of a certain thing that is abhorrent to culture, then they get marginalized and they get deleted from culture. It's true. So if you look back over the last couple of years and when stuff has come out, when especially you know with, with guys who've done things that are wrong to women, which is horrific, there's no room for forgiveness. They're automatically what? Deleted from culture. And so this is the way that we live our lives. And I'm convinced that in the world and even in the church, we think that God deletes us when we mess up. Paul just said that. I'm the worst of sinners. In fact, all of us, we, you probably, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know it's true of all of us. We know ourselves. We know what goes in in our hearts and minds. We know the things we've done, the things we've thought, the things we've said. We know how horrific we are. We could say the same thing that Paul says. We are the worst of sinners. But Paul says, God's grace 
has made it possible for me to be saved from my sin. Man, when that one's taken care of, you can beat me. You can put me in the stocks. You can mock me. But Jesus has saved my soul. You can't touch my soul because that's secure in Jesus. Paul got that. And that's why he and Silas are doing this crazy thing of actually worshiping and actually praying and actually connecting with God in the midst of the worst moment of their life. Second thing, and that is they experienced joy and we experienced joy because Jesus had secured their future. They knew where they were going. They knew where this thing ended. Paul goes on in that, t- that Timothy passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He goes on and says this, But for the very reason that I was shown mercy, that in me the worst of sinners, he says it again, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So what is Paul saying? He says, I know that because he saved me, he has given me a life that goes on beyond this one, and that is secure in him. And that means this, because here's Paul's also, in his own words, says this, Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is what? Cain. How can he say that? Because he knows it's secure in God. That Jesus has given him eternal life. So he's thinking, you can kill me, and I'll be better off. Why? Because I know how this thing ends. I know where I'm going. I, I know how, what the conclusion looks like. I know what my future looks like, and you can't touch my future. And because of that, I have joy in the midst of suffering in the present. Just to think about that, that if you and I were to shift the way that we view death, if you've committed your life to Jesus and you understand that death is the gateway into your future, it's the place where you get to be freed from the, the struggles of this life and in the presence of God. And that's where it ends for those who follow Jesus. And that means that the worst you'll ever experience is in this life, not the next one. And if that that reality settles in on our lives, that means I can go through anything. Why? Because even the ultimate thing that we all fear, if death occurs, then it's gain for me. It's better for us. Have you ever gone through a season of your life and the only thing that keeps you going is you know that there's an end to it? And you know on the other side, the end is better than what you're going through and the struggle and the pain that you're going through. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us joy. Why I can have joy in this. Why? Because I know this is not forever. I know where this thing ends. There's something better. So last night for me, at 8.40 p.m., I hit a milestone. I hit the submit button on my computer screen to complete all of my coursework for my master's degree after two years. Finally. And I sat there after that, and Kim was looking at me, and she goes, how do you feel? I'm like, I don't know yet. It hasn't settled in yet. But I remember thinking, and I had this date. This is the, actually, the, the, I finished my coursework, and the class closes today, December 15th. I've had this date kind of circled on my calendar for two years. Because there are moments where I'm like, I don't know if I could keep up this pace. I don't know if I could get this paper in on time. I don't know if I can do all this work and all this reading. I don't know if I can do it with all the other things going on in life, but I kept thinking December 15th. If I can make it to December 15th, I can finish. And it just kept me going. Why? Because I knew on the other side of that, when I opened my computer on Monday morning, I have no homework (laughs) for the first time in two years. It's a great thing. But we go through seasons of life, and the only thing that makes those seasons bearable and gives us joy is we know there's something on the other side. There's something on the other side. Paul and Silas knew in that moment when they suffered that even if they lived, Paul actually says it to live is Christ. Christ will continue to work in my life. But if I die, 
I die. I win. In fact, my enemies lose and I win. And that's what God wants us to understand, the joy he gives each one of us, the security in that, which leads to the third reality of why they experience joy and we experience joy. Jesus had strengthened their hearts. So Paul and Silas had been filled with joy because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God was working in them. His spirit lived in them. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. So he's saying to Timothy, God is working in you. He says in verse 7, he says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Suffering what? Through God's power. Which means they had an ability that other people didn't have. Almost an unfair advantage when you're in prison and your life is on the line and you're suffering physically. They had an unfair advantage. They had the spirit of God living inside of them. Which, in, which gave them the courage to face the pain that they were facing. I cannot imagine what it's like to face the sufferings of humanity apart from God's presence in my life. I've never had to go through that. I've gone through difficult seasons in my life, but never absent from what God is doing in my life, that he's present. Paul and Silas understood that. They got that. And this is one of the things we'll talk about. One of the distinguishing factors between a follower of Christ and someone who's not following Christ is the fact that you have joy in the midst of the worst moment of your life. That's what people see. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you can think of a couple people in your life where you look at them and you think, I don't know how they made through that. Made it, they walked through that. I don't know how they went through that and maintained what they maintained. I don't know how they went through that and actually had joy and stayed connected to God because I don't know if I could have done that. So one of those examples in my life, I've talked about it many times, is my dad. It's about 25 years ago now. I think it's about that, maybe 26 years ago. Remember my dad sat all of us kids down and he said, listen, he had been going through tests, and he said, the doctor confirmed it. He goes, I have prostate cancer. And I remember when he said that, that, like, that rocked our family. And, and so I remember my dad said that very calmly. Not matter of fact, but he was so calm. I remember we're all falling apart, and he's fine. You know, the one should be falling apart. He's not falling apart. And I watched him as he had a front row seat as he went through surgery and extensive radiation, and he went through all of the treatment, and and eventually, after that, he was declared cancer-free. And we praise the Lord for that. And then about six, eight months ago, I got a phone call from my dad. And he said, well, I went through some tests. And he said, I've been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And now I have to start treatment for that. And he almost, I'm not joking, it was almost like he was telling me he caught a cold. That's the way he came across. I know it was much more significant than that. But then he just finished his treatments, and now we're waiting for a scan to see if he's clear, and we're trusting the Lord that he will. But, but I've, I've had conversations with him and talked to him, and I have been in awe of the fact that he has never wavered in his commitment to Jesus. He's never questioned what God is doing. He's never said, God, why did you allow me to have cancer twice in my life? He still has joy. He still has this sense of something inside of him that is giving him the courage to face what seems overwhelming. Paul and Silas had that. My dad has that, and every one of us is supposed to have that. Because if you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you. And he gives you the, the, the ability to be encouraged and to have courage to face whatever we walk through. So with those three things, if we really believe all the one theme that runs through all of those three things is this. God is always with me. He's present. 
Tim said it earlier this morning. We were praying before first service, and I, as soon as I closed my eyes to pray, we prayed for about 15 minutes, God, what are you saying? And as soon as I closed my eyes, God said, I am here. And it wasn't somehow like, oh, I'm just gonna show up at run, or, uh, on runway today at Antioch. No, God is here. God is here all the time. He's there in the hospital when you get the diagnosis that you don't want to get. He's there when your relationships are falling apart. He's there when you're, ba- you're upside down financially. God is always present. He never leaves us. And if I get that, I can have joy. They had that. So what I want you to do now is look at verse 25. Because here's what happens. Here's the outflow of joy. Because Paul and Silas got those things, they understood those things about what Jesus had done for them. This is what the outflow is. This is what people saw of them, the the firsthand witnesses. The first thing is this. Joy is demonstrated, or we're demonstrating joy when we keep praying. This is so important. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Now, when you and I read that, like, well, okay, they're praying. Well, Well, just think about that for a moment, what they're going through. Lowest moment of their life, probably the greatest physical suffering they're experiencing. They could die. And they're doing the one thing that many of you and I disengage when we don't agree with God's work in our life. When we go through difficult times, what do we do? We disengage from God. We stop talking to him. Because it it hasn't turned out the way we wanted it to, and so the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And so we disengage from God. We stop praying. What are they doing? The first thing they're doing in suffering is praying. They're turning to God. And I know this is true. I'm guilty of this in my life that there are things that I will pray for over and over and over again, that God would bring deliverance or God would bring his power to bear, God would bring healing. And I'm praying and praying and praying and finally just God doesn't do it and I just kind of lose my steam and my energy and I disengage and I forget. Anybody relate? Or I pray and pray and pray and pray and I keep praying and God doesn't answer and I'm still mad and I stop praying because I am mad. Or there's another thing that happens. We pray and pray and pray and pray and guess what? God answers and then we forget. Why do you think that you read through the Bible how many times God has to rehearse what he's done? Because we always forget. But what are they doing? They're praying. In fact, I know myself enough that I have a tendency for my prayer life to kind of go on a roller coaster ride where I'm praying intently for things and then I forget and I move on. I've intentionally, what I've done doing over the last couple of years is I, every, about once a month, once every five weeks, I take a block of time, extended time in prayer and say, God, what should I be praying for over the next four or five weeks? And then I stopped doing this a long time ago, but I re-engaged this about three years ago, and I make a prayer list. And it's usually comprised of five to ten things that that month, every day, I'm going to shoot to pray for. And the reason I've done this is I have been so shocked when I faithfully pray pray for things. Guess what happens? God actually answers my prayers. But when I don't write them down, I forget what I'm praying for. And then I forget the fact that God's answered those things. And so I'll literally go at the end of the month, I'll go and I'll start checking off. And I, I don't have a mathematical equation to figure this out, but I'm guesstimating it's about 75% verifiable that God's answered 75% of my prayers. That's not bad. There's other things he may be doing. He's not giving me the answer I want for the other 25%, but I know he's still at work. What if we were to shift the way that we understood? I'm going through the greatest moment of pain and suffering, and God, I don't think it's fair. I don't understand. So what should I do? I should pray. Why? Prayer is a sign of joy because you're still turning to the God that you don't understand and you're looking to him for the answer because he's the only one that's gonna break through in our lives. So they were praying in the midst of this. Then there's a second thing if you go on in the passage. Joy is also demonstrated when we keep on worshiping. We keep worshiping, we don't stop. Paul and Silas are praying. It says they were singing hymns. Not only were they praying, they were, they were worshiping. What is worship? Worship is not just singing. 
But worship is a life that's fully devoted to God in all aspects. The outflow of that may be singing hymns to God. So they were worshiping. Why is that significant? Because about a month or so ago, I mentioned one of the things that's true of worship is worship is an interruption with our preoccupation with self. We need that all the time. That's one of the reasons when we gather on a Sunday that we do worship and song because you may not feel the words you're singing. You may not feel like you should do it, engage, but it's a reminder to you to get out of your own head to get out of your own rhythm because we all live in our own rhythm of life. And you know what? Most of our rhythms of life are all about us. It's our world. It's, it's what we think about. It's what we do. And all of a sudden, worship comes in and invades that and breaks that rhythm and does what? Reminds us who God is. Worship is so powerful. In the midst of suffering, what are they doing? They're worshiping. I'm convinced it's true for them and it's true for us. The words that we sing in worship are more for us than they are for God. They are. Does God need to know how good he is? No, I don't think God needs anything. But do we need to be reminded of how good God is? You better believe we do. That's why we sing songs like that, about Jesus rising from the dead, about him being the king of our heart, about what celebrating his birth. Why? Because we forget all of those things. But worship invades that and causes us to remember who God is, which puts all of our struggles in perspective and sometimes you and i have to intentionally do that we have to self-interrupt and i know this is true for my life one of the things you've heard me mention is our staff here gets a sabbatical day every quarter which is one day paid it's not a vacation day it's not a personal day it's not a run errands day or catch up on work day it's a day that they get to go and do whatever they do to connect with god that's the focus of the day i have a confession to you i haven't done one in nine months i've not been good at that i've been a little busy but that's on me. And so I realized the other day the tension in me, and I'm feeling this, and, and I was looking at my calendar and kind of calendaring things out into the next year, and I went back and I started like looking at what I had, and I realized it'd been nine months. Because what is a sabbatical day for me? It's I'm calling a time out on myself. I'm disengaging from the routine of life for one purpose. I need to re-engage with God. I need to be connected with him again. I need to understand what's going on in my life and be, get that perspective. And so I end up doing that in my life. So worship is so important for each one of us. Then there leads to a third thing, and that is so important, is to keep seeking. Joy is demonstrated when you and I don't give up because circumstances look bad. We keep seeking after God. We keep going after him. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to who? To God. They realized who their anchor was outside of this. It was not themselves. It was not somebody else. It was God himself. That's who they were reaching for. They kept seeking him. And this is something that demonstrates so powerfully in our lives that God is present when even when life is horrible and overwhelming, we keep pursuing God. We don't disengage. We don't turn our back. We don't walk away from him because that is the normal pattern in our lives. When God doesn't do what we think he should do, it doesn't work out for us, we disengage. We pull back from God, not realizing that's why James said, count it pure joy. Why? Because Trials is the evidence of God's work in your life. You're like, could we have some other evidence that would be a little easier than trials? No, that's the way God works. In fact, I want to just take a few moments to do something. Um, I talked to somebody, I, I was shocked, and I don't know if they were lying to me or they're telling the truth, that, that most of us, our favorite book of the Bible is not Job. I met somebody today who actually said that it is. I'm like, okay, I believe you. 
But most people, when you, you know, you come up, my life verse is Job. I never hear that. It's not Job. Why? Because Job is a book of suffering. And in that suffering, we don't seem to understand why it happened and how it happened and try to explain it. And there's no answers to it. And so we, we kind of get frustrated. And so most of us don't go through and say, I'm going to have a Bible study on Job. I'm going to my devotional reading commit to read through all, all of the chapters of Job. We don't do that. Why? Because we don't get it. But what I, I want to do is just read through why Job is so important and why it's in the Bible. Because it's a book about suffering that doesn't resolve all the suffering. But Job demonstrates something that is so powerful that sometimes we miss. miss. So if you don't know the story, let me just give you a little context. So Job in one day loses everything. He loses his kids, his wealth, his flocks, his house, everything. The only two things that he keeps is his wife and his life. And you'll later read that he hopes he wishes he lost his wife as well. Because she not, she's not so encouraging. So in one day he loses all of this. At the end of the day, this is what he says. This is Job chapter 1, verse 21. He says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Whew. You and I might say something different. <laughs> he was still acknowledging who God was, even though he had lost everything. So you get to chapter 2, and his wife kicks in with some really timely encouragement. <laughs> After he breaks out and sores all over his body as if his suffering wasn't bad enough, this is what she says to him. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. She had the gift of encouragement. We can see his wife did. So if that wasn't bad enough, the one person in this world that's supposed to be your greatest ally is your spouse. Then his friends jump in and they go on for a few chapters and they tell him how it's his fault and how he has to now take this on and giving him all this great advice and in chapter 13, verse 15, after all of his friends blame him and correct him and say he's wrong and basically that he should turn his back on God, Job says this of God. He says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Even if God takes my life, I still hope in him. So Jeff, Job's suffering continues on and on and on. You get to chapter 19. And this is what he says in the midst of his suffering. He says, I know there is someone in heaven who will, at, will come at last to my defense, even after my skin is eaten by disease, while still in this body, I will see God. Man, Job has this internal strength that I wish I had, that I long to have, that I can have, because the same God that lives in him is the one who lives in me. And then you get to chapter 42, and you start to get to the last couple chapters, and there's this summary of what goes on. So Job basically launches on God and says, come on, explain what's happened to me. I don't get this. And then God's response pretty much is this. Hey, Job, where were you? <laughs> you haven't been around long enough to know what's going on which doesn't really resolve the suffering of Job, but then this is what's interesting. After God gives his reply back to Job, this is what Job says, which is really powerful statement. This is Job chapter 42, verse five. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. How did Job see God? Through suffering, through his suffering. He had heard of God and what God can do, but through his own personal struggle and his own tension in his life, he's now seeing God for who he is. And then you go to the, the last part of chapter 42 and verses 10 and 12, you see this summary, these summary statements. It says, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Now you're like, oh, that's a great ending. That's wonderful. But you know, there's 40 some chapters of suffering. 
to get to that. But what did Job have? Job never cursed God and died. He never turned his back on God. He stayed faithful through his suffering. Why? Because Job understood that God was still with him even in his pain and his suffering. So he chose to kept, keep on seeking God. When all of his friends said, give up, quit, even his wife said, stop. He said, no, I'm not going to give up on God. So what circumstance do you face? Maybe you feel like you've had a Job experience in your life where you've had a season where you feel like you've lost everything. Be like Job. Continue to seek after him. Why? Because it's evidence of the joy that God has placed in you. And then there's the last thing. And this is really important because, again, this is what demonstrating joy looks like. This is how people know that there's joy. You keep on sharing. Maybe you don't even know that you're sharing, but this is why it's so important. You don't say you have joy. You demonstrate you have joy. And joy is determined not by you, but it's by those around you. So what does it say? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Why do you think they were listening to them? Because they had nothing else to do and they were bored? Well, that could be part of it. But I'll tell you why they were listening to them. Because this city, Philippi, was in an uproar because they had set a slave girl free. And there was such a frenzy. I'm sure they knew why Paul and Silas were there. And they knew of their reputation and knew that they were followers of God. And so they're watching them. How are these followers of God, these, these followers of the way, this new sect of Judaism, how are they going to react, these Jesus followers, when now they're just like us? Now they're in prison, just like us, guilty as prisoners, as, and what's going to happen in their life could be on the line. How are they going to respond? And what did they do? They sought God, they prayed, they worshiped. And these other prisoners watched. Now, we don't go on the rest of the story, but I'm, I'm, this is my guesstimate, and I think I'm pretty close. I can ask Peter or ask him, Paul and ask Jesus about this when I get to heaven. But when you read on the story, it says that an earthquake hits, all of the cells fly open, but nobody escapes. Why do you think nobody escaped? Here's what I would say. Because they watched two guys demonstrate the power of God by the joy they had in their life, and they didn't want to go anywhere because they wanted what those guys had. Even being freed from a prison and they could run and escape, they stayed put. Why? Because they saw something in Paul and Silas that they didn't have. They chose that over their own freedom because there was something so evident in their lives. See, this is the distinguishing factor. Not that you manufacture it, but if you and I live our lives convinced to this reality, God is always with me to the last moment of my life, then I live with joy. And that's what the world's dying for. The world's dying for a group of people that actually has a genuine joy that's demonstrated no matter what season they walk through. There's something different about those crazy Christians because they always seem to have joy in the midst of horrific situations. That's been the marker of Christians throughout the centuries. I've seen that in so many people's lives, and I hope that that would be true of my life, but I can give you examples of others. And I'll tell you, one of them who, who blew me away, in fact, I was looking at my calendar, and I, I realized it's been seven years, seven years ago this week that I did a memorial service for a man named Al Washington. And Al and Miriam were a part of our church up in Oregon. It's the last memorial service I did literally before we, we moved back down to California. And Al and Miriam were just the most incredible people. They were the people that you always wanted to be around. In fact, they were greeters in our church. They were the kind of people that you wanted to walk in the front door of the church and greet you because they were so warm and welcoming and they were joyful, not because they were trying to pretend to be because they were greeters. It's because that's who they were. 
And so I remember as I'd gotten to know them over the years, I had always watched how they had both go, gone through some personal relational struggles with family members, and they had gone through some physical things, but I'd always watched them maintain this incredible outlook of that God was still at work in their life. And then about three or so years before Al passed away, he was diagnosed with a, a lung disease that was degenerative, and there was no hope of any recovery apart from a miracle of God. And we prayed for Al, and we contended that God would heal him, but God chose not to, and God chose to take him. To, to, to receive him when God had appointed his time to leave this earth. But I remember the last two to three weeks, Al was in the hospital. I went and visited him a number of times, and every time I would go in, when you walk in the room, you would realize that this didn't feel like a room that somebody was waiting to die in. There was like joy in the room, even though he knew he was going to die. And so I would go and I would talk to Alan, and, and as the, the days kind of progressed, he, he, had, he, was, he was weaker and weaker, and he had his, his breathing was sh more shallow, and sometimes he couldn't really talk. But boy, when he would talk, you could tell there was just this joy in him. In fact, I had watched over that last year, he and his wife had really, their, their, their walk with Jesus had gotten so deep. They were so hungry for God, even though he was suffering. In fact, one of the things they did the last year of his life, I, I will never forget this, they were so hungry for more of God, they started memorizing volumes of Scripture. Not like a verse here or there or even a chapter. They were memorizing entire books of the Bible. They had the entire book of Romans word for word memorized. And I would literally, I would say, Al, what's in Romans chapter 11? And boom, it would come right out. There was just this hunger. And I knew that Al was, was experiencing the presence of God and the joy in his life because when I would come in, all the doctors and nurses would tell us, we love Al. We don't want Al to die because Al actually makes our day better. This is with the hospital. I mean, they've seen people suffer and they see people die all the time. And they loved Al while because Al had something that a lot of other people they had not seen. And I, to this day, I remember I've done a ton of funerals and memorial services. And I think to this day, Al's is still the one that was the biggest celebration I'd ever been a part of. Because there was joy in the room. In fact, I remember, you know, I do this. When, when, when I do memorial services for people who knew Jesus, Normally, I have to tell people to be quiet so you can start the service. It's not solemn. It's not quiet. Why? Because we realize where that person is and the joy that they have. So if you and I are convinced that Jesus is with us no matter what, then we should live a life that's full of joy. Not manufactured happiness, not cheerfulness, not positive outlook, but deep-seated joy that comes up at the worst moments of our life. That's what Jesus came to give us. That's the joy he wants us to experience. So would you, you close your eyes? I'm going to ask the worship team as they, if they would come and they would join me. We're going to sing one last song, and it'll be a, de a declaration of, of God's goodness in our life. But just with your eyes closed as a point of reflection, please hear me when I say this. I don't want to downplay any amount of suffering that anyone in this room has experienced. I don't want to make light of any disease that somebody has gone through or the broken heart that you may have over the loss of a loved one. Because I know that the joy that Jesus brings is not a quick fix. It's not a band-aid. It's a deep-seated transformation of your soul. There's no way that Paul and Silas could have been praying and singing hymns to God if what they were experiencing was not real and genuine. Nobody can manufacture happiness in the midst of the most brutal physical suffering any human being can go through. It has to be something deeper. And God wants to do something deeper in each one of us today. He wants to bring the joy that only he brings through the presence of his spirit in our life into our circumstances. 
So the promise of God's joy for you and I is not that somehow he will make all of our problems go away. He may bring healing. He may bring mending in our relationships. He may bring financial blessings so that we're not in debt any longer. He may do all those things, and many times he does, but one thing's for sure, whether it's with plenty or with little, whether it's in good times or in bad, he is always with us. And he wants us to know that today, and he wants us to live that way. So I'm going to pray in a moment, but I want to encourage you. If you're at a low moment in your life right now, Jesus is here. And if you've said yes to Jesus, his spirit lives in you. And because of that, he wants you to experience joy. He wants you to, to live in the joy that he has for you. That no matter what you go through, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's going to always be present with you. And I'm going to pray in a moment, but when I, after I do, we're going to go into a song called Doxology, which you're familiar with. And the reason we're going to do that song is because every time I've read this Acts chapter 16 passage, this is the song, although I know they were singing in Hebrew, <laughs> this is the song that I thought they probably would sing because it's a declaration of how good God is, what he has overcome, who he is. And in the midst of overcoming senses, we need words to remind us of the God we serve that is bigger than our circumstances that has defeated death, that has forgiven sin, that someday will welcome us into his presence apart from suffering and trials and the struggles of this world. And he has secured all that because he came at Christmas, but he died on Good Friday and rose on Easter so he could secure all of that for us. So Jesus, today we pray that you would, by your spirit now, would you infuse joy into our souls not to positive spin or to live in denial of the circumstances of our lives, but Lord, would you transform us so that we can experience the joy that comes from knowing that you're with us, that you've saved us, that you've secured our future, that you hold everything in your hand. And as a result, Lord Jesus, we would live out the joy that you intended us to live in because it is something we are experiencing every single day as you walk with us. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.